African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us right here for a one-hour program where we have a panel discussion from Monday to Thursday looking at the big subject matters on the continent and abroad. Thank you for joining us right here on African Dialogue. you with me, Benjamin Mushatama. That's Benjamin Mushatama, your host, until midday Central African time. Remember, we're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. That's our shortwave service. You can also join us on DSTV on channel 802. Uh, remember, you can also check us out on our website where you can stream us live on www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, uh, today we are moving into the issues of the United Arab uh, Emirates. And uh, we know in the Middle East there seems to be tensions there. And uh, most of these things sometimes are really associated with the issue of uh, terrorism. And terrorism seems to be a so-called sentiment for what's happening there currently. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates. Emirates and Bahrain severed their ties with Qatar uh, just this past Monday, accusing it of supporting Islamist groups, opening up the worst rift in years among some of the most powerful states in the Arab world. Now, the coordinated move dramatically escalated a dispute over Qatar's support of the Muslim Brotherhood, the world's oldest Islamic movement, and added accusations that Doha even backs the agenda of regional rival Iran. Now, announcing the closure of transport ties with Qatar, the three Gulf states gave uh, Qatari visitors and residents two weeks to leave their countries. Qatar was also expelled from a Saudi-led coalition fighting in Yemen. Now, we need to make sense of all of this because uh, there must be a bigger context out of this. Joining us once again on African Dialogue, we've got Naeem Gina, who's the executive director of the Afro-Middle East Center. We also have Zinat Adam, who's an independent international strategist. Naeem, I have to start with you. The action of the five uh, Gulf states hinges on allegations that Qatar is supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, which is considered to uh, supporting terrorist organizations. Now, do we have ample proof that this is the case? A lot of people saying that this is not the main reasons. There's more to uh, this boycott. Well, I mean, <clears throat> two questions there that I want to respond to. One is, yes, it's true. Uh, Qatar, in some other way, does support the Muslim Brotherhood in that um, when the uprisings took place in 2010-2011 uh, across the Middle East North Africa region, uh, Qatar was actually the only one of the Gulf states that uh, enthusiastically supported the uprisings, which, uh, which resulted in uh, some acrimony between it and Saudi Arabia and the UAE in particular, both of which wanted to keep the dictators who were in power in power, particularly uh, Mubarak and, uh, in Egypt and Ben Ali in, in Tunisia. When the Muslim Brotherhood candidate won the election in, uh, in, in Egypt, um, Qatar welcomed that um, and in a sense supported uh, uh, Egypt under that uh, democratic president. When the Muslim Brotherhood, after the coup in 2013 in Egypt yeah. and uh, the crackdown on the Muslim Brotherhood, a number of uh, Muslim Brotherhood members took refuge in, uh, in Qatar. 
So um, one might be correct to say that they that they have supported the Muslim Brotherhood. They also host, for example, um, the Hamas uh, Palestinian resistance movement, um, which you know again is in some way linked to uh, to to the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, however, is not regarded as a terrorist organization. Mm, that's what I wanted to ask you. Yes, by, by virtually anyone except uh, except these Gulf states and, and Egypt. Uh, Hamas is not uh, uh, recognized as a terrorist organization by the United Nations. Um, so that that that, and certainly the the accusation that uh, that uh, Qatar supports uh, the Islamic State group and Al Qaeda are just not true. In fact, the more money goes to IS and more recruits go to IS from Saudi Arabia than from uh, from Qatar. Mm. But the uh, the other reason, of course, is um, that is being used against Qatar is uh, its relations with Iran. Um, Qatar has good relations with Iran. It shares an, uh, um, a gas field with Iran, etc. Again, the reality is that the United Arab Emirates actually has more trade with Iran than, uh, than Qatar does. Except for Saudi Arabia, all the other Gulf states have uh, diplomatic links with, uh, with Iran, has embassies there. Um, so, you know, the bottom line is that Qatar is, uh, is being paid back for its support of the uprisings in the in in the region, uh, and and these other things are, are really kind of uh, um, in a sense uh, justifications used for that. This is in a sense the final final stage of the Saudi and UAE inspired counter revolutions against the uprisings in Egypt. Uh, um, uh, uh, Tunisia, etc. Mm, let me move on uh, to you, Zinat. Your thoughts of the sentiments made there by Zan- Z- uh, uh, Naim. Uh, do you agree with the sentiments coming from him, Zinat? Well, I certainly agree with Naim that a lot of what is taking place now has its roots in the Arab Spring and in uh, in what is, what took place between 2013 and 2014. But I think that it's worth noting that up until that stage, the Muslim Brotherhood had um, people in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They had remnants of the Muslim Brotherhood in some kind of socialist movement in those countries up until that point when it appeared that they would become a threat both to the UAE uh, ruling monarchy as well as to Saudi Arabia in the form of a political Islam democratic movement. And that's when both of these countries began to really uh, squash down on their people and began to be irritated by Qatar's uh, independent policy. Um, Qatar had already been a little bit uh, of a maverick in its policies from about 1995 when it decided to break from the traditional style of GCC policies mm. in uh, talking to a number of other people and trying to build alliances with countries such as Iran and in uh, in hosting a number of dialogues um, and especially in the establishment of the Al Jazeera News Network. That in itself, uh, an emblem of free speech, was already uh, an irritant to all of these countries in the region. But I think what we're really looking at right now is uh, Saudi and UAE trying to push uh, Qatar a little bit further out of a space and recognizing that the election of the U.S. President uh, Donald Trump is an opportunity to reassert Saudi hegemony in this region.
Mm, very concerning issues there that you both highlighting there. Now, coming back to you, Naeem, you know, my question here is uh, coming back to the issue of intent here, because I know that you're highlighting the fact that uh, this uh, whole debacle comes from the uh, moment where the Arab Spring was taking place. But what would be the real intention of dislodging the strength of Qatar and uh, actually also separating it uh, from uh, the allies uh, uh, within the Qatar Gulf? Well, the the real purpose is to uh, return Qatar to the kind of status it had in the Gulf region uh, before uh, before the current emir's father became emir. Uh, because uh, the current emir's grandfather, when he was emir, he was uh, basically pro-Saudi. Uh, the Saudis ruled the roost, and, and he followed what he was told to do. Um, the current emir's father then had a coup against his father, mm. uh, threw him out, took over, and, and began charting this kind of independent foreign policy, and, and the point that Zinat makes is, cor- is correct. I mean, uh, from the time that Al Jazeera started, the Arabic channel, uh, before the English that many of us know, um, it became a thorn in the side of, uh, um, of all of the regimes in, in the region, uh, partly because it did media completely differently. It actually did media the way we think media should be, uh, as opposed to uh, endless hours of uh, kings shaking hands. Um, but also because it uh, it did uh, media in a critical way, mm. and so it, it it you know firstly you had you had this um, uh, this new emir who uh, um, who decided that they're going to have an independent policy from from the rest, and in fact at that time um, Saudi Arabia um, uh, uh, was attempting a coup against him, uh, but but failed. So you have this uh, new emir who uh, kicked out his father and wants to chart his own foreign policy. Secondly, he facilitates the, the starting of a new kind of media project mm. that changes media in the region and that is critical of everyone. So it's been a thorn in their side uh, since, since then. And what they want to do now, uh, both Saudi Arabia and, uh, and the UAE, um, the UAE basically wants to silence Qatar uh, and, and Saudi Arabia wants to, uh, as, as the Saudi foreign minister said, place Qatar under guardianship, uh, where basically Saudi Arabia has a governor that, that rules Qatar in, uh, in its interests. Well, I'm going to come back to that, especially the leadership contestations that have been taking place in Qatar themselves and the allies that uh, Qatar has established uh, since uh, uh, the emir that you highlight there, which is Sheikh Tamim bin Ahmad bin uh, uh, Khalifa Al Thani. And uh, in terms of the international allies that Qatar have also associated themselves uh, compared to the ambitions of the Gulf Corporation Council and what they want to do, have they seen a rift between uh, the domestic international relations of Qatar versus what uh, the Gulf Corporation Council wants to achieve? Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, uh, the African Perspective, joining us on this discussion on uh, the five Gulf states that have severe ties with Qatar. We have Naeem Jina, who is the Executive Director of the Afro-Middle East Center, and Zinat Adam, who is an independent international strategist. Give us your thoughts. Do you think it's fair what's happening here, the five Gulf states severing ties from Qatar, accusing it of supporting Islamist groups. We want to hear your thoughts. At Channel Africa One is our Twitter handle, or you can go to our other handle, at African Dialogue. We still want to hear your thoughts. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back. 
The SABC is calling on all South Africans to play their part and to support relief efforts for the people affected by the Western Cape storms and wildfires. You can support by providing non-perishables and other much-needed resources. Please donate across all SABC offices nationally, the gift of the givers, and other NGOs who are working with first responders on the ground. Let's come together, South Africa, as a country and as a people, and let's help where it's needed the most. Follow SABC platforms for more updates. This is an SABC Foundation-supported initiative. Yes, you're listening uh, to Channel Africa, the African Perspective, an African dialogue where we bring you the best guests looking at the big topics on the African continent and abroad and also giving you things from an African perspective. Thank you for joining me, Benjamin Mushatama. I'll be with you until midday. That's midday Central African time. Remember, interact with us on our Twitter handle at Channel Africa 1 or at African Dialogue. We're asking you the question, is it fair to see the five Gulf states severing their ties with Qatar, accusing it? of supporting Islamist groups. Already we've uh, uh, surmounted views from our guests. The fact that they're saying that the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas have not been uh, internationally viewed as um, a terrorist groups. But we know that domestically within Egypt, there was a period in time where uh, those groups were seen as um, a political, uh, uh, kind of uh, having that kind of Islamist, uh, uh, extremist uh, uh, kind of uh, view uh, from leadership in, in that that regard. But Naeem, I want to come back to that question that I was asking in terms of uh, the domestic kind of approach, especially by uh, the new Amir, uh, Sheikh Tamim bin Ahmad Al-Tani, uh, within the context of his type of leadership. I know that he's been seen as having almost uh, a Western approach in his style of governance and also his uh, background, the fact that he studied in the, in the UK has been something that's also been seen as maybe as a threat in his type of leadership. Uh, leadership, contrasting that to the ambitions of the Gulf Corporation Council? Well, firstly, you know, if we talk about the ambitions of the GCC, uh, that is not something that is very clear. Um, The GCC uh, has not really ever operated as a kind of strong, cohesive uh, group with a single agenda. Um, Even on this issue, uh, not right now, it's only the UAE, uh, UAE uh, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain um, that that have uh, imposed sanctions on Qatar, and, and Bahrain is basically a, a Saudi proxy. Um, but uh, the the current uh, Emir of of Qatar, uh, Tamim, um, he's you know in 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 many ways he's uh, continuing the kind of uh, policies that his father had. Mm. Uh, in some ways, he's a little more conservative than his father. Uh, you know, remember that his father is the one who made the break from from the Saudis, charted a new policy, sure. etc. Mm. He's continuing that. He's been a little more careful about uh, being too adventurous, mm. um, but uh, he has continued uh, um, his the, 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 his father's policy in terms of the international relations, trying to maintain relations with as. Uh, as many different forces as possible. So on the one hand, there's an American base, the largest American base in the Middle East, and uh, the headquarters for the American CENTCOM mm. um, with 11,000 soldiers is in, in Qatar. On the other hand, they have good relations with, uh, with Iran, for example. Um, they have also, although he's toned this down a little, but during his father's time, and he's continued, uh, attempted to have mediation efforts all over the, all over the place. Uh, Somalia, Sudan, uh, among Palestinians, Palestinians, Israelis, 
um, and so playing that kind of uh, that kind of a role. Um, and finally, that uh, he continues the kind of policy of trying to make Qatar an intellectual and cultural center of the Arab and the Muslim world. You know, let, let's remember that, that the notion of uh, Qataris having to look over their shoulders at the Saudis is quite, uh, quite deeply ingrained in, in, the, in the Qatari psyche. And, um, and, and setting Qatar up as an independent country, which is a center of uh, culture and intellectual activity, etc., makes it completely different from, from Saudi Arabia or the rest of the Gulf, mm. but also makes it, in a sense, indispensable, uh, certainly to the rest of the Arab and the Muslim world, but uh, to the world more generally. And, and, and that's what Qatar wants to end up being, um, the place where, in a hundred years' time, when you talk about, uh, when you talk about Do uh, Doha, you talk about that, that uh, intellectual center. Mm. Gentlemen, I think I'd like to come in here sure, come and just in. highlight some very interesting issues about Qatar and, uh, and, and what these kind of things that uh, Naeem is talking about have an impact in the region. Mm. I think one of the things when you're talking about education and what uh, Qatar uh, sees for itself as being a leading force in education, culture and civilization for the region, that stems very strongly from the mother of Sheikh Tamim. And this is something that is very unusual for this part of the world, where a matriarch of a family takes the lead and is really the driving force behind a number of the policies in Qatar. And from a misogynistic region, from the number of dictators who have a very patriarchal view on the world, this hasn't been something that they've accepted very easily. And I think that's one of the things that they would like to see changed in Qatar's policy. In fact, it's one of the reasons why they've been driving for a coup, um, and there have been several attempted coups uh, in Qatar in the last few years. They probably see uh, Sheikh Tamim as a young man. He's only turned 37 last week, and therefore inexperienced uh, without having uh, his father behind him, his mother behind him, and a number of other uh, leading uh, politicians behind him would probably not be able to take the brave decisions that he has until now. But if you look at the kind of uh, support and uh, nationalism and patriotism that has come out in Qatar in the last few days since the siege, um, and not only in Qatar, but from a wide range of society around the world, in the Muslim world, in the Arab world, but in the developing world as well, uh, even in the countries that have supported, uh, whose governments have supported uh, Saudi Arabia in its action against, uh, against Qatar, people have come out in the streets, have expressed on social media their support for Qatar. In the meanwhile, the countries have repressed their people and have, in, in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have even criminalized sympathy with Qatari people. Now this is something that could in fact backfire on the GCC mm. in doing so. Another aspect that I think we're missing when we're doing an analysis of this mm. because mm. we're not so connected with, with what's happening on the ground mm. are the tribal issues. Last week, in, in, in the midst of all of what was happening, mm. one of the largest tribes in the Arabian Peninsula called the Bani Hajar, and that represents at least 10 families in Qatar and in, the Saudi, and in Saudi Arabia, 
pledged allegiance to Sheikh Tamim. Now, this is a major, major issue mm. in Saudi Arabia because what this means is that the tribal dynamics are going to be twisted. And mm. you also have another tribe called the Bani Tamim from whom the Al-Thanis uh, derive their lineage who are also seeking a leadership. And these are dynamics that are also going to be uh, dividing the political society in terms of where their alliances lie, whom they're going to be backing, and if indeed there's going to be a push for a change of leadership in Qatar, which leader do you indeed back? And I think these are things that we need to be very watchful of because there may be the international politicking that is happening, but there are also very, very serious mm. maneuvers that are happening on the ground. It, it's interesting that you speak about those domestic issues, and I want to go outside the Qatar itself, um, and, and let me start with using it with this question that I've heard some people saying that Saudi Arabia has a big voice when it comes uh, uh, to this uh, instance, and uh, that they do play a domineering uh, kind of role within the context of what's happening when it comes to this uh, particular issue. In terms of the Qatari issue? Yes, yes. Yes, of course. I think that, Qatar, uh, that Saudi Arabia is the dominant voice here, and I think that that has been the case for a number of years. If we look at the GCC and the whole conf- configuration of the GCC, um, and you look at uh, simply the dynamics in terms of uh, the traditional dynamics as well, you have a kingdom, and so the king is always going to have uh, the upper hand in comparison to an Amir. And I think the expectation initially when uh, the siege was planned was that Qatar would back down almost immediately, as it has in the past whenever pressure has been applied by the GCC, and bow down and go to the king and apologize and say, well, you know, we're going to change our policies and we're so sorry that we've done this. But this time, what Qatar has done is to say we are standing steadfast, we are a sovereign nation, we're independent, and we're not going to be dictated mm. to by a dominant power. We don't care that you are mightier than us in terms of size, in terms of your military power, and in terms of the allies that you have. We may be smaller, but we are independent, we are sovereign. We have had these policies for over 22 years. And we're not prepared to change it unless you can give us legitimate reasons why. Uh, What has taken place has been a brutal media campaign that has demonized Qatar. But there hasn't really been concrete evidence that's been provided. I mean, the list that was given to say that these are terrorists is a list that I saw when I was still in Qatar, which is in 2005. And that was a regurgitated list from the CIA that was produced maybe in the 1990s. It had no bearing. It was rejected by the United Nations Mm. as being farcical. And it's really a smear campaign, Mm. nothing else. Mm. But what is also concerning is that there appears to be a lot more uh, campaigning being done within Washington Um, with a plan to institute sanctions against Qatar in the future should it continue to remain steadfast in its position. If it does not uh, back down and agree to relinquish its support for Hamas, 
in particular, then a bill is being tabled at Congress that is going to institute sanctions against Qatar. And this is a very, very serious uh, move on the part of Saudi Arabia, on the part of the UAE, and in cahoots with Israel from the looks of it. So I think this is actually going to take the issue into a much broader perspective Mm. within the Middle East and take it out of the GCC context. Mm. We also have to take note of the shift in the balance of power, the alliances that are going to be moving. Traditionally, Qatar would never move away from the GCC. What we're seeing now is, is the GCC going to survive this? Is there going to be a dissolution of the GCC? We've seen Qatar now relying on Turkey, with Turkey coming in um, with its troops Mm. based on a previous military agreement with Qatar and Mm. showing very strong support to Qatar. Also Morocco. We've seen Morocco coming in, expressing support and willingness to to use its diplomatic tactics to try and solve the problem. And we're also seeing Iran taking an opportunistic role in this seeing that this gives them an opportunity to draw Qatar closer to itself, noting that Qatar has always had a friendship with Iran, but it's been a cautious relationship. This would be an opportunity for Iran to draw Qatar much closer mm. And, mm. And, and shift those alliances to a different perspective. Mm. Your thoughts, Naeem, on uh, the uh, the dominance of Saudi Arabia and also the, the power shifts that uh, uh, Zinet is highlighting here? I mean, I, I think that, that Zinet is correct. I think uh, also that, uh, you know, the, 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 the power and dominance that Saudi Arabia has wielded in the region, in the Gulf in particular, um, is something that has been, you know, now kind of taken for granted. Um, this is this is part of the problem, of course, that uh, that, that that Qatar is now, uh, in a sense, challenging that not not in a direct way, but certainly by changing the political culture in the region is is challenging that, and uh, changing the political culture. Um, I think Saudi Arabia can correctly interpret that as being uh, as being threatening. Uh, openness and uh, democratic movement. I'm not saying that Qatar itself is democratic, but democratic movement um, in in the region uh, will certainly be uh, very threatening for uh, for absolute monarchies like like Saudi Arabia. Um, I should also say that you know we we shouldn't just uh, talk only about Saudi Arabia. I think that the UAE is a big player in this regard. Um, the UAE, which is also a very rich country, has been spreading its money around uh, all over the region and beyond. I mean, in various parts of Africa, for example, uh, in order to buy political mm-hmm. influence mm-hmm. And, and other forms of influence. So, sure. um, um, you, you know that uh, one of the one one of the bits of support uh, for this uh, sanctions against Qatar came from Libya. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't from the government that's internationally recognized, the government of national accord. Mm. It was from the, uh, uh, from the government in the east, and particularly um, the general Khalifa Haftar, who's uh, intent on, on, uh, on, on basically taking over the country and, and reshaping it as he would like. Um, you know, with, with whom now uh, Gaddafi's son, Saif mm. al-Islam, is... Mm. Uh, is uh, take has taken refuge um, so they, they also have been uh, interfering in the that the UAE 
in the in the Palestinian context, uh, dishing out lots of money in order to buy support against uh, President Mahmoud Abbas, etc. Even in Yemen, mm. where both uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are involved, um, the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia are not entirely on the same side. Um, the UAE is supporting uh, secessionists in the south, mm. um, while Saudi Arabia supports the former President uh, Abdul Hadi. Um, and and the two those two groups have uh, have been at loggerheads even uh, you know uh, have attacked each other in in the past few months. Mm, um, mm, so so UAE is certainly a big player in the region and wants to become an even bigger player, and I think would like to uh, would like to substitute uh, Saudi Arabia as the mm. main player not just in the Gulf but in the broader Middle East and, and North Africa region, mm. uh, being also the main sponsor of, uh, of the Egyptian military government as well. Mm. Um, so so we, we just need to keep that, uh, that uh, point in mind as well. Well, after the break, I'd also like us to look at the African context of this, as you highlighted, Libya. I know Senegal was the first to recall uh, its ambassador from Qatar's capital, Doha. Chad and Mauritania followed suit, and over the weekend, uh, uh, Niger announced it was also doing the same. How does Africa fit into this equation? Why so much interest in this topic when it comes to African states? Well, it's 11.36 Central African time. You're listening to African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatam. Let me take a quick break. We'll answer those questions after this. My name is Kwame Kwayama, and football is so much more than just a game. You can hear me read this wonderful true story of how the former prisoners of South Africa's infamous Robben Island turned football into an active force in the struggle against apartheid. So join Channel Africa at 9 a.m. Central African time, Monday to Thursday, for more than just a game. Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. Well, we've got great guests today giving us their insights on what's happening in terms of the Qatar Gulf crisis. And we've unpacked so many other areas and power shifts that are taking place when it comes to this issue of Qatar being blockaded by some of the Gulf states and severed ties have actually deepened the fragmentation within that particular region. Uh, Zinette, now we see also Africa wants to contest uh, in uh, this particular issues, countries such as uh, Senegal, uh, countries such as Chad, Mauritania. Why, why, why would Africa want to be involved in such a complex issue? Well, I think that it really comes back to um, the policies that both Saudi Arabia and Qatar have had in Africa in the last few years. Um, If I recall very uh, significantly, uh, Qatar had been an active member in terms of trying to mediate in Africa for a, for a number of years. Um, distinctly, uh, when I was there and following my uh, term there, uh, was the issue of uh, Darfur, um, which was very high on the Qatari agenda. But also notably, Qatar became a member of the Francophonie, which is a very unusual move for a country from outside of the African region. So it really 
uh, positioned itself within Africa in order to be able to play a significant role um, and influence the policies and politics within uh, an African perspective. Um, I think that it also related to how the power dynamics were being played out between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Uh, what we've seen in the last few years, and I think particularly since the abdication of um, uh, Sheikh Hamad to Tamim, is a reduction of that role uh, in Africa. And that has given space to Saudi Arabia and the UAE to fill that void. Uh, a lot of it has to do with economics. A lot of it has to do with buying the kind of uh, politicking. Mm. And these have become client states. So the first country that I recall on the very first day that the siege was instituted was Mauritius. Mm. Two years ago, Mauritius had participated in a military exercise with Saudi Arabia and was in fact intent on uh, deploying troops to Yemen along with the Saudi forces. Now, this is an interesting dynamic because what happens in those kind of relationships is that there is a financial transaction that happens as a result of it. This is not just being done out of the goodness of their hearts or because they have bought into the policy direction that Saudi Arabia has for a region or because they are vested in those interests. It is mercenary activity, if we have to be very blunt about it. Um, if we look at some of the reports, for example, on I know we're going outside of the region and giving this example, but Pakistan is in a very precarious situation mm. because it has deployed troops for a number of years, both um, to Qatar and Saudi Arabia, and these troops have uh, acted as part of Qatari and Saudi military. Uh, they have been embedded into Qatari and Saudi military. And now this puts uh, Pakistan in a precarious situation because it can't choose a side. Similarly, this is what's happening. But I think that what Saudi Arabia is also doing is it has been campaigning very strongly in Africa. We saw reports in the last two weeks. Um, there have been conflicting reports with regards to Eritrea, who has been a very strong ally of Qatar for a number of years. Last week, the report came through that Eritrea turned down uh, an offer of several million dollars to support Saudi Arabia and had instead pledged their support for Qatar. This morning, there was a conflicting report that came through from Al Arabiya, which is a Saudi news channel, saying that Eritrea had pledged its support for Saudi Arabia. Um, we've then seen that Somalia has said that they've turned down an offer of $80 million or in that region, uh, also from Saudi Arabia. So clearly there is um, a financial uh, a benefit to these countries if they were to support Saudi Arabia. But I think in many ways Saudi Arabia is trying to already build up uh, uh, or lobbying for support in the event that this mm. has to get bigger mm, than the Gulf mm, states, mm, in the event that this goes to the OIC, the mm. uh, Organization of Islamic Countries, and in the event that this goes to the Arab League, in the event that they need to have support at the United Nations, and particularly at the United Nations General Assembly for a resolution, by having smaller, relatively what some would consider insignificant countries like the Maldives and like Mauritius, hmm. it still ha holds a vote at the United Nations. It still has clout 
in mm. terms of numbers. And therefore, if those countries are in the camp of Saudi Arabia, it would definitely work to their favor. Naeem, um, I, I want to know, because we've got a few minutes left, two or three minutes left of our program from you, do you think that uh, uh, Qatar can uh, uh, survive this isolation? I, I, I think Qatar will definitely survive it. I mean, uh, I think that they, at a political level, they are determined that they have dug in their heels and they're going to um, stay on, on their uh, on, on the position they've taken, they are seeing uh, the attack against them as being something that essentially threatens the character of the Qatari state as it now is, and and threatens its independence. As I said, the foreign minister said, uh, you know, that what, what what the others want is to put Qatar under guardianship. So they're not willing to allow that to happen. They are not that weak that they will have to give in. Um, economically, uh, things are more difficult than they were um, two weeks ago, but uh, I think that we're also going to see a kind of reconfiguration in the region uh, of alliances and, and forces that will that will um, support Qatar's position ultimately. So I think that the Saudi Arabia and UAE, who expected Qatar to buckle within a couple of days, um, have actually bitten off more than they can chew. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you guys have been uh, fantastic giving us the context of this situation. Thank you to Naeem uh, uh, Gina, who is uh, uh, Executive Director of the Afro Middle East Center. Zineta uh, Adam, thank you as well for giving us your time. She's an independent international strategist. Thank you both uh, for giving us Channel Africa this uh, uh, great context into the situation here. I'm sure we'll be looking at this situation. I'm sure if we need any updates, we'll speak to you both. Now, that takes us to 11.45 Central African time. Uh, you are still listening to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. you with me, Benjamin Mushatama. Uh, this is uh, uh, African Dialogue. Well, I ended with a great song. I remember when I was uh, kind of into pop music, this is the song that introduced me more into African traditional music because we live in such a Western space here in South Africa. Seven Seconds by Yosundo and Nene Cherry was that song that kind of uh, led you kind of astray and you started listening to now uh, different kind of music within the African continent. Fantastic moment for uh, world music at this particular time. Seven Seconds, that's how we're going to end it up for me, Benjamin Mushatam. Until next time. God bless. Bulma sen, bulma gisma gire, nga fok mi yo. Khamma, limete gisma su, aksigina. Bekuma, kuma khol dal dine yo. Linette si yo, mone si man, line si mo, moe dilem diapole.